Welcome to the Good Life Central Oregon podcast, where we pursue the good life by helping you pursue yours. The good life begins with a roof over your head, so please contact our sponsors for this podcast, Remax Revolution and Sisters. Remax is the number one real estate company in the world, and Remax Revolution offers new solutions for better results. Go to ilovecentraloregon.com to find out more. Here we are at uh, the Kailoa shop. What, what exactly would we call this? Shop. The, the, the shop. Yeah. Shop. And we're with uh, Dave and Meg Chun, um, co-founders of, correct me if I have my information wrong, but co-founders of Kailoa. Uh, and they make uh, paddles for stand-up, which we are going to get into, I'm sure, in this con- in this uh, uh, podcast because there's some there's some stories just on that alone. But uh, dragon boating, which I know nothing about, and, of course, Outrigger, which I know a little bit about. But, but uh um, be, instead of trying to give this grand introduction, I just want to get right into this because you guys have a story that I uh, have been wanting to tell or hear for a while. Would you please uh, introduce yourselves to everyone? I'm Dave Chun. And I'm Meg Chun. And, and uh, tell us a little bit about life before Kealoa. Um. Wh- I was a social worker before I started um, building paddles, um, and actually I participated in triathlon. I injured my knee and uh, couldn't run anymore, and so um, I, don't know, I was just kind of languishing in the gym, and um, some guy asked me about um, outrigger paddling if I wanted to join, um, and I told him, I, I'm too small to do that, and he says, you know, now they need people of all sizes. So I went out for paddling, and I really liked that. Um, and that's kind of, you know, so basically I was a social worker with a bum knee and I ended up paddling outrigger and um, just really fell in love with the sport. And where were you and what, and how old were you at this time? Um, this was in Hawaii. We um, were from Oahu. Um, and I think I was probably about 27 years old. I, can't, I was really late coming to outrigger. Um, yeah. Meg? <laughs> Well, uh, my story is a little bit different because I'm not actually originally from Oahu. I'm originally from Wisconsin, and I was... There's uh, another story there, I'm sure. Yeah, (laughs) and I was teaching um, school on Oahu. I was a special ed teacher before I worked for Kealoa, and um, was looking for a way to get, you know, meet people and, and meet and get more involved actually with the local culture. And I've always loved sports. So some women that I carpooled with told me about this paddling thing they did. And I went out to a practice one night and was hooked the very first night. And I have been an outrigger paddler ever since, which was, I guess, 25 years ago. I was 26 at the time. Mm. I had just moved to Oahu. Um, probably I should explain a little bit about the structure of outrigger paddling in Hawaii. Um, you know, over there, it's, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a big deal. It's um, the state team sport. You can get a high school letter in outrigger paddling. And so for a lot of people, um, this is their former exercise. Not only that, it becomes their um, social connection with other people. Like the club I belong to uh, and Meg belong to, Kailua Canoe Club, had 250 members. Um, basically, you practice probably four or five times a week and you race on the weekends. Um, your, your life is devoted to paddling. You're expected to be there for your team. 
Um, and a lot of us end up, we coach. That's part of our, our job is we, if, as you get um, more experience, you, you're supposed to pass on to the other people. Um, there's also main, maintaining equipment. Um, basically, it, it's your whole life revolves around Outrigger. And, and Outrigger has a much deeper tradition there than, yeah. than just a sport and a well, without the, hobby, right? Without the Outrigger canoe, there's no Hawaiians because um, one commonly held belief is that the, the Hawaiians are um, Tahitians. The Tahitians sailed um, north about 1,000 miles and discovered the Hawaiian Islands and settled it. Um, and that's why if you look at the words um, in, in Hawaiian, like, like the word for canoe is, is uh, va'a, which is W-A-A in Hawaiian. It doesn't use the alphabet exactly, but it's pronounced va'a. In Tahiti, it would be um, also called va'a, which is V-A-A. Yeah, so they spell it, um, you know, Romanized or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so it is pretty apparent that they are the same people. So the basically it's the... It's the mothership, so to speak, the canoe. And so we have deep reverence for the canoe. Um, yeah. And is that something that everyone in Hawaii participates in? Um, kind of. You know, I think on some level we're all aware of it. Um, I was really small growing up as a kid, and I really wanted to paddle. All my friends paddled. Uh, I was really shy as a kid, too. And so I didn't feel I was, uh, I didn't think I would be very good at it. I was just, I don't know, I was, maybe I was ashamed a little bit. I didn't, uh, so I didn't go out for paddling, but I always wanted to paddle. And it wasn't until, uh, it took me a little while to grow, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and of course, other stories that I've heard doing my research uh, for this podcast, it you know, talks about how you, you became the go-to guy to start fixing stuff. And you, you kind of alluded to part of the, the team thing is you have to keep everything maintained. Is, is that correct? You want to tell us? Or? Well, no, you were the equipment manager, so. Yeah, well, um, it, it was back, you know, back when we started paddling like 30 years ago, there, there wasn't an industry. So it was hard to get equipment if you wanted, basically, if you wanted something, somebody's uncle or somebody was making the paddles in their garage or something, um, or there was like one paddle maker. It was a very small localized business. Um, so when equipment it was hard for us to get equipment, one, and then um, when they broke, you pretty much had to just put them back together yourself because um, otherwise you wouldn't have any gear. And it, that's where we're kind of like where. I guess where I started is I started repairing Megs in my paddle. And then we had a couple of friends who were getting married and I had this great idea that I was, we'd give them um, canoe paddles for their um, wedding present, you know, but they were like 65 bucks a piece. And you know, it's 30 years ago, you know, 130 bucks, that's a lot of money, right? So I came up with the brilliant idea that, oh, I'll make the paddles. Um, And I really have no background in woodwork or in this kind of stuff. Uh, I took wood shop in the, when I was 12 years old during summer school. Um, I guess I had some basic understanding of what to do. I borrowed a bunch of tools from some friends, and I made a couple paddles. And uh, I figured while I was at it, I'd make Meg a paddle and myself a paddle. And um, our friends at paddling practice saw them when, when we showed up, and they wanted paddles. And it just kind of organically grew from there. So where we sit today in Kilo and Bend, Oregon started with a need to be Mr. Fix-It. 
basically. Yeah, but <laughs> I kind of remember it slightly differently, and it really was that Dave, you know, he's always kind of a forward thinker, and he was thinking, these are really beautiful paddles that, that we got from a local builder, but he thought that they were a little bit bigger than they needed to be, like the shape and the design of them. And he was, I remember we came to the mainland and he wanted to go to an REI. We were in Seattle or someplace and he wanted to show me this this wood paddle that he thought they might have there because he had this idea of how that paddle would be, you know, that style of paddle might be better for outrigger. And, and um he actually, the paddles he made were a little bit smaller, like the surface area, because paddles used to be gigantic mm-hmm. and over the years have come down in size. And that's... They look like ceiling fans, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, I mean, for me, what I remember was more like, you know, it's hard to get equipment. And I think I, I think there's a way to make a better paddle. Mm-hmm. And um, it was never, oh, let's create a business plan and, you know, let's have a pro forma and figure this out. It was just, how can I get my hands on some better equipment that I think is better for me? And wasn't really the intention of selling further on, but exactly what happens when you're with a 250 member club, mm-hmm. they start going, Oh, what are you using? Oh, can I try it? Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, can you make me one? And kind of just grows from there. Well, the first time I ever went outrigger canoeing, uh, my wife and I, it was a couple of years ago now, we're visiting, um, or we were in Kihei in Maui, oh. and we had some friends that lived there, and they were uh, members of the Kihei Canoe Club, yeah. and they invited us to join them one day, so we did. And, you know, for all the, the non-club members, you had the basically the, the rental paddle, and, you know, it's just a paddle. I didn't think much of it. I've used paddles before. It's just a paddle. And he said, hey, you know, try, try mine. And yet, because he had one custom made for him out of wood, and I just grabbed that. And just the way it fit my hand and the way it, and the way it just kind of felt it, it, that was my first experience of, whoa, you can have things fit you just right. And it was a joy to hold on to and make a difference. And then he took it away from me, gave me the rental paddle back. (laughs) You're like, darn. (laughs) Darn. Oh, I got to go talk to the Kealoha folks. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so what does Kealoha mean? Actually, that is a funny story. It, it means racing canoe, but Dave never knew that. He's the one that named the company. And I remember him saying uh, when he first started building paddles, oh, when I was a kid, I was enthralled with these Transpac boats. And there was this one named the Kealoha. And he can expound on that part of the story more. And he said, so I want to name my company that. Oh, great. Okay, Kealoha. That's a great name. We'll call it Kealoha. Still yet, we had no idea. What We never thought about, hey, let's wonder if that's actually a, um, a word that has a name versus just a name, you know, mm-hmm. like Joe yeah. is a name. So I was teaching at a Hawaiian homestead school, and we were doing a, um, a unit on Hawaiian canoe building traditions. And the end of that unit was a whole section on the different canoes. So the fishing canoe versus the voyaging canoe versus the traveling, the, the racing canoe, and they all had different names. And I get to racing canoe, and it's Kealoa. And I was thinking, I came running home that day. I said, do you know what Kealoa means? And it was ironic. At the time, I was quite a bit thinner than I am now. But it meant tall, willowy woman. And I'm obviously pretty tall compared to Dave. Mm -hmm. And it meant racing canoe. It had these two things where we were like, oh, my God, that's the perfect, perfect name, you know. That sounds a little too... Yeah. Too good and too easy to be true. Too but, serendipitous. But yeah, yeah, too serendipitous. Yeah. Perfect. So did, did that have any emotional impact on, uh, excuse me, when you, when you uh, came home and told Dave, Dave, did you have any, any response to that? Um, 
at the time, no. Um, you know, the, the, but the name Kiloa, it does, it does have a, um, as the story goes on and on, you know, um, it does have more and more connection. Um, and the, the Transpac is a, is a sailboat race, and I, I believe it starts, uh, it starts, I think, in San Diego. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but it starts somewhere on the West Coast in California, and they sail these um, um, boats to uh, Hawaii. And the, the, when I got interested um, in the boats, you know, when I was like 11 years old, you know, um, the boat that won was a boat called Kialoa, and that was owned by this guy named Jim Kilroy. And um, it was a, you know, I think it um, it really was about you know just having dreams and things, just being a young kid, and I was just really enthralled by the sailboats and all of it. And, you know, I remember building a sailboat um, in summer school in woodshop. Uh, it was kind of, everybody else was making kind of two-dimensional objects, and I, I decided I'm going to build a sailboat. And so, I mean, it was uh, as I look at it now, we still have it. I'm like, holy smokes, a 12-year-old kid made this thing. It was it's kind of it's kind of a funny deal. I mean, when I think about it. Um, you know, it actually looks like a sailboat. <laughs> um, so anyway, years later, we find out that um, this, you know, there's a connection to the Kilroy family, and they come, and I guess the, the one of the grandson. Well, I mean, the first connection is that our neighbors who live behind us, the husband was my first principal when I moved to Bend, Oregon, and became our sales rep. 20 years later for a while. Oh, funny. His wife was over one day, and somehow that name came up, and she said, the Kilroy's, well, I've been on that boat. I was on that boat when I was a little kid because my parents were friends with the Kilroy's. So that was kind of the first connection to it. And then the first Battle of the Paddle, the first stand-up event, Battle mm-hmm. of the Paddle, Dave wasn't there, but I was there. But a woman came up to the booth, and she was kind of looking around at the stuff, and she said, Kiloa. Where'd you get that name? And I said, are you Jim Kilroy's daughter? And she looked at me and she goes, yeah. Like, what? Yes. How did you know? So I said, well, you know, basically this company is named after your father's boat. So I lead her through the whole thing. And then oh, wow. it turns out that her son is our Southern California's rep, rep's best friend. And he's a photographer and he's been taking pictures for us. And so the connections just boom, you know, it just, it, this, this expanding Thing to this whole Kialoa, and it was pretty neat because there's a story about when he learned yeah. that we actually. I think some. I, was it that he you know, originally felt that we? He originally felt. I think the, the feeling was that we took the name Kialoa, you know, and and a lot of it was because you know when when the dot com thing first came out, we Meg was real proactive, and she we have Kialoa dot com, so probably when they went to go look for it, it was taken by some some yahoos who have some paddle company and it was what was really nice is the Kilroy's when once they got to know us and they got to um understand that really it was it was the um it was in reverence reverence. it was 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 a tribute to yeah Yeah. right once once they understood how genuine we felt about uh Kiloa the boat um they really embraced us and and you know we've had correspondence I I have a picture that um Therese Kilroy the, the daughter has sent me and it's of her um of her father um, steering Kialoa, like there's five of them, and uh, it, it's it's really been nice. I mean, so the that's really the most emotional thing about it is this this family, and they've you, you know it started off as a place where it was there was some probably a little bit of tension there, and now it's become they they totally under, they totally understand how we feel about Kialoa. So have you been able to set foot on the boat? No, I haven't. Kialoa's been sold, 
And um, Jim is in his 90s now, and he, he, he's not able to sail anymore. Mm. Um, so I don't know where the boats are. I've, I've kind of looked, I track them every once in a while. Like one's in Europe. I think Kilo 5 is there. But uh, if anybody out there knows where they're at, let, let me know. Yeah, I know. That'd, that'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think a big boat like that would fit in the Deschutes River, though. But no, it's, no, it's, probably you know, not. It's, it's like 70 feet long. It'd be, it'd be nice to see. It'd be a track. bridge across from side <laughs> to side. I know. It'd be a new restaurant down in Old Mill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the one of the big questions I have to ask you guys, and those were the questions that really uh, brought me here, is why did you move the paddle company for Outrigger Canoes from Oahu to Bend? How did that come about? Well, we really couldn't afford to buy a house in Hawaii. On a, Understood. Say no more. Right. <laughs> Teacher, social worker, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I'd only been in Hawaii five years and was really interested in staying. And Dave was sort of like, well, you know, I've not spent that much time on the mainland. He'd lived on the mainland for a couple of years when he was 20 or 21. But for him, it was like, oh, yeah, this sounds like a great adventure. Well, we kind of decided we want to live on the West Coast to be closer to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. But um, be nice to live where there are some mountains because I'd lived in Colorado at some point, too. Mm-hmm. So, we were, you know, we'd been I'd been hearing about Bend since 82 because I had lived in Breckenridge. So I'd, okay, I'd yeah. known about Bend. It was on my radar. And I have a brother who lives in the valley. So we ended up coming to Bend on a ski vacation when we lived in Hawaii. And then we came back and looked at it. And we did lots of research. We came for a summer, went all over kind of the Northwest. We bought books like 50 Base, Best Places to Live. Mm-hmm. And Bend, even at that time, was up there. You know, this is in uh, 1990 and 91 when we're doing the research. And 92 is when we moved. Okay. So we basically settled on Bend because of the fact that there was water. We thought, well, we could still paddle if we want to, but we basically thought we were giving up being outrigger paddlers. We, we really yeah, thought, you know, we might have our one-man canoes, but we well, didn't. And in 19, in my first time ever coming to Bend was 91, and, okay. and there were, what, 15,000 people here? Right, and, yeah. And Deschutes Brewery was five years old? Exactly. Exactly right. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that was a big leap of faith, yeah. it seems. So, yeah, but we have to understand is Dave is still a social worker. I'm still a special ed teacher. Okay. We say if somebody gets a full-time job, we're moving to Bend. If okay. not, we're, we'll just keep staying where we are teaching and keep trying to sock away money <clears throat> to move. So... Um, we both got half-time jobs right away and with looking like mine was going to turn into full-time by October, which it did. And he didn't want more than half-time. So then he's building paddles in our garage, but you have it's still just a small little... We were still not in a situation of, wow, we're going to have a business. It was this thing that Dave really wanted to do. He'd been working with troubled teens since he was 19. He's now, you know, 34, mm-hmm. saying, I'm kind of over this. And... I'm really interested in making paddles. And I was like, hey, if that's what you want to do, I'm all for it. I'll, I'm happy to be a teacher. I'll get the health insurance. And, you know, we bought our first house for $107,000 in Bend, Oregon. It was a brand-new spec home on three-quarters of an acre. You know, <laughs> right, exactly. I imagine that. So we were like, hey, we felt like we were living high on the hog. So Hopefully you kept it. <laughs> uh, well, we upgraded slightly, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, uh, I mean... But the main impetus for leaving was actually financial. Yeah. You know, not really having any great visionary plan of saying, we're going to have an outrigger company in Bend, Oregon. It, it still at that point was organic and something Dave really wanted to do. But but again, with neither of us with a, you know, any kind of business background, it was still very 
um, you know, home home business, I guess you'd call it. So is it, so when you moved to Bend, so was Kailua not even a thing yet? It'd been a thing for a year, and now it had been a thing on the Dave's parents' lanai, and now it was a thing in Megan's Dave's garage, two-car garage. Interesting. With a wood pellet stove. And shortly thereafter, within a year and a half, we started getting some bigger orders from California, and Dave said, I'd like to quit my job altogether. I was like, okay. And we rented a space in the old mill, which now is the 10 Plex Theater. That was our first shop, <laughs> which was great because that whole mill was private property. Yeah. And there were only a couple of, of businesses down there. And so Dave can tell you about all of his wonderful adventures of a few years of being down there before the development started and having that whole piece of property basically to yourself to fish and hike on. So I, I, I need to clarify something okay. because... I, like I said, I first started coming up here in the early 90s. My parents moved here and, uh, and to Sisters in 93. I followed in 2002 with my wife. But I, I remember visiting this general area in that time. Um, and I, I, ref, I fondly refer to Sisters in that day and age as the Grits and Gunrack town. And, um, and it is not, Central Oregon is not the town that it, it is today or, or wasn't back then. Um, so there's little population there's, you know, still, uh, still a lot of um, logging. Still a lot of logging, and 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 that, and that uh, demographic. It's not the uh, board short, stand up paddle, flip flop wearing, and 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 land paddle thing we have today. How did you market? How did you get your product out there for people to see it? Oh well, we never intended to sell anything here in town. Um, all our paddle sales were we knew were going to be in Hawaii and in Southern California, um, Canada. So it really didn't really matter. So, what, but so it, what, but it, what, what you're asking is actually, I asked that same question. So we have all these connections back in Hawaii. How are we going to let them know what we have? So what I did is I uh, went to a woman that I had met who was a graphic artist, and I said, hey, I need some sort of a catalog. I mean, I didn't know any, but I just knew, you know how, we, you know you need something. Mm-hmm. What do you need? So the first one I was really rudimentary. I might have even done the first one myself. Mm-hmm. And then I just got a mailing list from the Oahu Canoe Racing Association or something and did snail mail things out to people to let people know, hey, you can order paddles this way and got some orders that way. And then, you know, just talking to people that you knew in the paddle, the outrigger paddling world is actually really small. If you've been in it now, especially the longer you're in it, it's a, it's a small niche market and it's a, it's a small world. So it's easy to get the word out. Was that the, was that the, uh, the way you guys were able to start building this is through word of mouth? Yes. Because I can imagine that very first phone call, you know, saying, hey, you got to check out these paddles. I got, oh, yeah, well, where do I get one? Yeah, you got to call Bend, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean out there in the mountains in the middle of the desert? Yeah. They're, well, they, they're making paddles? Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's give them a call. Right. And I mean, I think it was the referrals from, you know, a lot of the top racers and yeah. people were using our stuff. Mm. But we also, um, from the very beginning, we always went to, there's a state race where all the, People from all the islands come together, um, and we would have a booth there, and so we people knew us from that. And then we were also in stores uh, on Oahu, and so people saw our products there. Okay. When we left Hawaii, we had picked up our first brick and mortar. But then we also went to events in California, went to events in Tahoe, which that was yeah you know, right on the border, northern. So. So we actually, we, see, we were racing and coaching here. Mm-hmm. We ended up 
Oh, that's a long story in itself. But then a club formed here, and there we were right back in the thick of it, traveling to races. So we were still involved in it, and we schlep all our stuff with us. But the other thing we did that was actually really early on is, is we put up a website so early on. We were, in fact, we, we didn't, of course, we, again, we have no background. We met with a small business coach from the college. Mm, okay. And Bob Newhart. Was it Bob was the it first was Bob meeting? Newhart, yeah. And he said, well, you know, I did some research on outrigger paddling on the internet, and there's, there's not a single, there's not a single website. There's nothing on the internet about outrigger paddling. And I was like, well, that might be true, but we need to put a website up because we need to be able to show people our paddles. So how, and then I, this is the other question I remember, which might've been Bob. Well, what are you going to be? Are you going to, you're a, you're a manufacturer, you're a distributor, and you also want to be a retailer and sell direct. And I said, yeah. And he goes, but you can't be all three. And I said, but yeah, you can, because we already are. And that's what we want to do. And, and, you know, we knew the outrigger world. I didn't even know what all that language meant exactly, but he's telling me you can't do it. And I'm saying, yes, we can. And the beauty of that was one, there are very many brick and mortars that carry outrigger paddles. But the other thing is that made us be way ahead of everybody else in terms of having a web presence because we were really the first any kind of website at all that had to do with outrigger. And were you selling online then too? Yeah, we went into selling really quickly, as fast as we could get a little mini shopping cart up there. You know, oh, it was all fantastic. done manually. Yeah. But I, I mean, I really, I realized quickly how how else are. I mean, that's going to be the best way for people to get to see us. Well, and then that uh, I'm going to skip ahead in some of the, the questions I want to ask, but um, in uh, one of the YouTube videos on on your guys' channel, you, you talk. Dave, you talk about how you don't really watch what other paddle companies are doing. Yeah, I don't. So, given given the fact that you guys were selling online and, and getting that across, but you're not really paying attention to the uh, the competition per se. How how do you know if what you're doing is right? How do you know if what you're doing is successful? I mean, it, how do you how do you measure yourself if not by comparison? Um, well, I guess success for us is if the customers buy our product, which means they like the product. That's really the bottom line. Um, I don't, you know, I don't look at my competitors' products, but that doesn't mean I don't look at other things. Um, I communicate regularly with uh, athletes, and that doesn't just mean like the fastest guys are fastest sponsored guys. Well, that's just like the everyday person, the average paddler. Just the average paddler like, like me. They're, you're the guys who, the average paddler is who buys our product. You know, um, they're our best friends. So um, we like to know what they have to say. And then my job is to interpret um, all the information I gather from the different um, places and, um, and make a paddle. And then, but also a lot of um, paddle making, there's not a lot of, uh, there's a history, but there isn't really a lot of, studies done on it. So we don't have a lot of empirical data. Um, empirical, that doesn't mean like uh, real life factual stuff, right? Um, that it doesn't, you know, there's not, we have to do our own testing and we have to kind of um, look to other um, objects to draw some kind of um, just some inspiration from a lot of times. It's not from other paddles. Um, you know, the other thing too I think about is, you know, like, um, if, if I just look at the other paddles, you know, our, you know that, that's stuff we already know. I mean, it's not doing anything. It's not, um, it's not moving the sport forward. It's like, you know, uh, 
you go to a great restaurant and, you know, while you have a perception of what food is, you know, it's really the, what I'm expecting is the chef to just, to show me something new and show me something different. And that's what makes a great restaurant, you know, this interpretation and this, or this new slant on something. And I think that's what my, what my job is, is to, um, is to take all the things that I think the paddlers want and to, and to give them something that's better than the last thing they had. So using your restaurant analogy, then let's say you walk into a fine Italian restaurant and you order the uh, uh, linguine con calamari or something like that. What, based upon what you were just describing with paddles, you know, there's a certain expectation of you know, people know good Italian food as opposed to I want something new that people don't. No, am I am I am I yeah. hearing you correctly when you say that? So, how do you blend the, the how do you blend the difference between tradition and innovation? Uh, that's that's always a, a very tough thing. So you can get out too far in front of yourself sometimes. The, you know, the customer will only um, accept. They have to they have to believe it somehow, and so you can't get too far ahead of yourself. Um, the fortunate thing about paddles is, you know, um, sim- simplicity is good design for a paddle. Um, you know, I've always looked at paddles. I never, I've never taken what I do. I, while I take it seriously, I don't, um, I don't think of it as such a specialized skill, you know, the paddle making. You know, I always thought of them like shoes. And I think about runners, and I think, what makes a great running shoe? And I think, well, it's the ones that don't give you blisters. Um, it's the ones that cushion your heel. It's a pretty simple thing. and The ones you enjoy wearing. Yeah, it's the ones you don't think about, basically. Yeah. And so that's how I see paddles, you know. Um, I say, you know, if a paddler doesn't, can't, doesn't have anything to say almost at the end of the, their paddling training, uh, you know, I think that's a compliment. They, didn't, they don't have anything to say about the paddle. It's just it's become one of them, one with them. So... It- the, the best compliment you can receive in your paddles is I didn't notice it. Yeah. You know, when he first developed this, this stand-up paddle probably four or five years ago, it was out of a completely new material and all this stuff. So I was the first one to go test it, and I was going out to take a bunch of women through Tumalo Creek Canoe and Kayak mm-hmm. on the water. And the first thing that happened is somebody dropped some sunglasses, like within the first three minutes. So I spent the first ten minutes trying to retrieve, you know, glasses at the bottom of the river with this paddle and doing all this stuff, and I'm supposed to be thinking about the paddle. The next thing I know, I'm in a lesson. I never think about it. Like, it never crosses my mind the whole rest of the time until the very end when I think, oh, my gosh, I was supposed to be thinking about this paddle. And the first thing I said was, wow, that was awesome, because it was a much less expensive paddle than our super high-end ones, mm-hmm. except that the, the way that the T-top was ergonomically fixed and the shaft was pretty comfortable. And so I thought... Wow, that's that's actually awesome. That that's incredible. That means that that paddle felt to me like my other paddles. That I didn't notice that even though it's not made out of as high end of a material, it's still feeling as high performance as that. Now, granted, I wasn't racing with it, but from a comfort level. And this just happened a few weeks ago in Hawaii with an entry level outrigger paddle we just came out with. And so, it's interesting. But I know I know what he's talking about. If you the minute you, it's like what you just said when you switched paddles when you were in an outrigger canoe. Mm-hmm. You know, you get it, and if it's comfortable and it feels good. Now, a person who's paddling with a clunker and switches over is going to say something. But you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of product testers, and um, you know, we can 
urge them for feedback, but you know, the, the bad feedback is, yeah, probably when they really notice something like, yeah, well this, I really noticed this, you know, then that's probably not so good. There's a- well, in the first, first podcast that I did, it was uh, with a young man named Hobbs and he, he's uh, the, the lead guitarist and vocalist for Hobbs, the band and he has the name and just an amazing guitarist. And the podcast is available on the website and soon will be available on iTunes. But uh, one of the things that he talked about with his virtuosity and here's a 26 year old who can play Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan covers like, like they're nothing. It, you know, makes me a little little angry that, that (laughs) I'm at my age and I didn't spend the time, but anyway, I digress. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He just talks about how with him, a guitar is just an extension of, of him and he doesn't think about it anymore. It's it's just a stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that, that, you know, coming from the, the, uh, the music world or coming from the cooking world and whatever world it is, you know, here we are in Birvana, you know, kind of the same thing, but you get to a point where a paddle is, is just an extension of you. Mm-hmm. And if you can do exactly what you want to do without having to think about it, that seems, that, that seems to be something special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just, I was watching this, uh, thing yesterday and it was about this race in the Sahara desert. They go like 150 miles. <laughs> and I was surprised that, um, they, they said that the main, that wasn't dehydration that knocks most of the people out. It was like usually blisters on their feet that takes them out of the race. So, you know, if you make products for endurance athletes, ergonomics really in a lot of ways is what you're looking at. Um, but, you know, the other thing about, you know, uh, design, and, and it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a funny thing, you know. I mean, um, you know, you're, you're trying to make a new thing for the customers and you're trying to ask them questions about what they want. But in a lot of ways, they can't, they can't tell you that. They, they have a hard time telling you exactly what they want. And, you know, but, but as much as possible, you know, that's the best source of information a lot of times we have, along with ourselves, our staff, you know, our impressions of what we do. But along with a lot of the great successes we've had with some certain paddle models, we've also had a, a lot of things that didn't really sell that well, or you could call them as failures. And it's kind of like the Tesla Edison approach to design, which is, you know, um, my failures kind of teach me as much as my successes, you know, and you just have to have a, a thick, you just have to have thick skin and you just have to, you know, persevere when things don't always work out. Hmm. Drop it, move on to something next. Yeah, or just reintroduce it in a few years. They'll, they'll just got to wait for them to catch up. Sometimes that <laughs> maybe, happens. Maybe you're ahead of the curve and you That's, have to hold That on actually to that. has that, happened. That, that has happened. And yeah. it's, it's okay, you know, I mean, it's just the way it is. You know, you, in some ways you can't take it personal. I mean, you, you, uh, designers, we talk about our passion for what we do. At, at the other, ex, other side of it is, you know, hey, look, man, the, you just got to let it go. You know, it's not, they're not making a personal judgment about you. They're just saying, I don't like this thing. And it might be, I don't like it right now. But do you have that connection to your creations that that makes it a little hard to let go when people say they're not interested? Actually not. Um, I don't, once I build them and get them into production, um, I really don't have a lot of interest in the paddles anymore. Um, I just, um, you know, I'm always, I always want to make another one. I want to, I want to um, just improve upon it. I always see the things I've done wrong when I build a paddle and I think, oh, I wish I could have changed some things, but I can't change them because, you know, there's um, sometimes there's a 
And these aren't great flaws, by the way. You know, these are these are just things that I think could be an incremental improvement. But but you have to pull the trigger at some point because you have to go forward. You got to get the new product out the door. It's on schedule. People, other people are expecting to do their part of the process. The, me as a designer, I'm maybe like one tenth of the process at Kialoa of getting a paddle to the market, and I'm the first one. So if I'm behind, then it just puts everything behind. Um, so. You know, it's just, I'm always anxious to move on to the next thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, and speaking of that, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about, so you, you started with fixing your own paddles in Hawaii, and then here we are now, flash forward. How, how has Kialoa evolved and come to the point where you are now? I mean, we haven't really talked about dragon boating, and, and, mm. and I, I definitely want to go to stand-up paddles next, mm-hmm. but, but how do you keep up with and stay ahead of the... Should we call them trends? Can we call them trends? Yeah, I mean the, I mean so Outrigger being that it's such a niche market and and we came in early and said, hey, Dave did things like how can we build a lot of paddles that are really really good, but how can we how can we make a really customized type of Outrigger paddle but put it into a more production process so we mm-hmm. can actually meet demand. So by by him figuring out a bunch of that stuff that that you know really propelled us and got us a lot of market share because we could deliver in a timely fashion allowed us to open up brick and mortars and be able to have short turnaround times and whatnot well along comes stand up that basically is a gift you know that falls into our lap because Laird Hamilton's talking to Jerry Lopez saying hey I'm doing this thing and I keep breaking my paddles some of them are having a paddle discussion and Jerry says well you know there's a guy here in Bend who makes a lot of outrigger paddles you should call him and see and Dave started building paddles for Laird and that's how our stand-up thing happened so 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 in our sequence of of categories it goes outrigger and then stand-up and while we were in the midst of stand-up dragon boating Venn diagrams with outrigger in particular on the mainland meaning many people who are dragon boaters also are outrigger paddlers and so we started we already had some you know we already had brand awareness in this outrigger world and people were asking us I mean in the dragon world and there'd be people asking us well you know why don't you make dragon boat paddles so I asked Dave for a number of years hey why don't we make dragon boat paddles but they the specs are really really tight you're not allowed to do anything creative like this is the shape it has to be this shape there's it's steeped in rich tradition correct and to, to put some, it nicely yes to put it nicely <laughs> so it was very it's very unmotivating for a designer to say oh sure. here's 25 pages of specs and this is what I get to build yeah and so that's the that, difference between a chef and a cook right exactly yeah. right so we got into dragon boat just knowing that it was another specialty paddle market and that's what we're good at and it, it fit our mission i mean our mission had to change but basically hey you know we're we're a paddle company and let's i think maybe because we lived in the northwest and there's so much dragon boat paddling happening in portland and seattle and there's a lot of outrigger in portland and seattle mm, those people yeah. are a lot of the same people but that's the sequence in which it has gone. Um, dragon really being our newest category. Interesting. Yeah. So if, if I can Go back track to stand-up. Yeah, yeah. stand-up, because yeah. I, I had heard second, third hand, and I can't remember the sources now, that it might have been books or videos or whatever, where the, you know, I heard the story of Laird talking to Jerry, who said, hey, Kiloa, yada, yada. But I hadn't heard any first-hand accounts of, with stand-up paddle, effectively taking over the world at this point. Is that fair to say? Because I've seen stand-up paddle blogs in, in Eastern Europe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, they're... It's everywhere. And it's yeah. inland, it's everything. Right. Is it fair to say that Central Oregon 
specifically you guys, played a significant role in the rebirth of the stand-up paddle movement? No, I don't think so. No? Um, I think really more what gained a lot of acceptance was it was the Hawaii guys, you know, guys with credibility like Laird, um, charging big waves and stuff. You know, Laird catching that wave and getting barreled at Chopu, man, that was just off the charts. I mean, you know, um, Brian Kealana, um, Mel Pu'u and those guys out of Makaha, um, you know, these are the localist local guys and, you know, the, the policemen of the beach and um, their acceptance of the sport um, and the surfers into the lineup it gave, made it legitimate. If you look at where stand-up first gained acceptance, you know, where it went from a bunch of kooks out there to like, these are real live guys, man, um, doing it. It is Hawaii. Um, still in California, they still suffer from a lot more, I believe, more localism from the, um, the lay-down prone surfers. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to tell you the truth, you know, I mean, like the, the lay-down surfer guys, they have their rights. I mean, you know, I, you know, I believe stand-up guys should, you know, stay the hell out of their lineups if, you know, if, unless, it's, unless they're accepting them. I mean, you know, it, it just, it's, they're crowded, these lineups yeah. and stuff. And, well, and, you know, and coming from Southern California, I can, and, you know, I spent... 10 years in Newport Beach and San Diego I grew up in San Diego and on a bad day there's still 100 guys in black wetsuits in the lineup and yeah. there's a, and there's one point break I, I get it that yeah, makes sense especially with paddlers stand-up paddlers can get the first run of the waves that's not fair the other thing stand-up has brought is it brought a lot of um, newer people to the sport and you know when you're on a 10 foot gigantic board and you're in the middle of a lineup with guys on short boards man you're just and their heads are like really low to the water it's, it's quite a d- dangerous situation um, but those things you know they're um, you always have those kinds of problems, and you know I think they'll work out in time. From an but. industry standpoint, we are the first people. Like ours was the first company to bring stand-up paddles to a trade show, mm. so we went to outdoor retailer, and this is a long, long time ago, and we brought these stand-up paddles. There were no, there was no such thing as a stand-up board. Yeah, that was clearly an example of uh, being ahead of your time, yeah. right? Oh, okay. So, yeah, here's so circling we, back to our so conversation. Right, and there's there's demo days. Well, what are you what are you going to stand up on? So yeah. we borrow our friends, you know, old the old windsurf boards that are slightly yeah. stable if you put the skag in them. Yeah, yeah. Which is what people were using when it first still, started out. Got there a neighbor no a couple boards. down, a couple doors down that's using his windsurf boards. Yeah, for yeah. his stand up. Yeah. Board. So we took that, and we have pictures of people like, oh, oh, what's that paddle for? They they take out a canoe, you know. I mean, they were just trying all sorts. So, oh, this is kind of cool, and course they're looking at us like why do you even have this here and we're telling people hey there's this new sport and it's kind of happening in in malibu and and on oahu or these kind of two areas because frankly at least for us the customer base were those two spots because laird lived in those two spots at that time and um the sales manager of hobie a few years ago we were at or and he goes you know i still remember you guys that year you guys were the first ones you he goes i tell people that kilo was the were the first people to come to a trade show with this you know with anything stand up and in fact at that trade show we bought a tandem soft top surfboard so to take home so we would have a more likely thing to test our paddles on uh-huh. because there just you know wasn't anything yet um, at, but at that same time, all you know, all sorts of things were gurgling and bubbling and, and popping up quickly mm-hmm. after that fact. You know, it was an interesting less, uh, lesson in, in business in that, you know, like some people try to monopolize a market. They're the first to the market and they want to be the only guys and control it. Well, we were the first to market, but there was nobody else there. You had no legitimacy. You know, people come walking around, the buyers would look at it and they'd be like, 
Well, no, I don't see anybody else here. There's no industry. We didn't start to pick up until, you know, the so-called competition, you know, started to come to the show. And now you start to have all these stand-up guys. That was the best thing in the world that has happened for us is to have all the people in the industry show up and legitimize the sport. So it really has changed my thinking about that instead of, you know, trying to be this island. You don't want to be an island. You want to be the continent with a lot of, co- a lot of countries on top of it, you know? Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. So what do you think of what stand-up paddling has become in Central Oregon? I mean, it, that sounds like a simple question to answer because you sell paddles, but... I think it's hilarious a, that on a summer day, it looks like you might be living in a coastal town because there are so many boards on people's cars. And frankly, living in Sisters and seeing what it was once before coming... You know, I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt today. Yeah. It, you know, it, 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 I feel like I'm at home because I see people with boards on top of their cars. And granted, the board's a little bit wider, a little bit thicker, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's absolutely surreal. Mm-hmm. It is... You know, I, I I wonder if you know Bend is a, is an indicator that of what the sport could be almost any place, or is Bend just an anomaly because there's so, so many athletic people and then there's a lot of people with money here, so they, a lot of them fly to Hawaii, and and participate in these types of mm-hmm. ocean sports. I mean, there's a surprising number of surfers in Bend. It just blows my mind that people tell me that they're a surfer. I'm like, yeah. holy smokes! First off, the Anybody who would go out at Pacific City has got to be hardcore because that's the most life-threatening thing I've ever seen in my life out there. Um, and the other one is it, it's a long drive, you know. Well, the waves here in Central Oregon suck, so you got to go where they're good. Yeah. But it, it's interesting to me, just in the time that I've lived here, that we now have sand volleyball courts. Mm-hmm. We, we now we have stand-up paddle skateboards we have stand-up paddling we have people with boards on their on their cars and in the summertime people are wearing board shorts and Mm flip-flops we we, call me crazy but we have a surf culture here in central Mm -hmm. oregon Mm -hmm. how does that happen well i think i think it happened simply because now there's eighty thousand people and a lot of them are from california you know I, i don't know how many local people have transitioned to becoming the surfer or if it's just that the culture is predominantly no longer north, you know, so it's just not local the, Northwest. These it, are all implants. Is Im- it another case of, oh, this place is great. If only it had a dot, dot, dot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and there's nothing, it's all, it's all good, but yeah. it's, it's, you know, when you meet somebody who grew up in central Oregon, you know, I love that when you meet somebody local mm-hmm. because they actually have a different culture. Mm-hmm. And well, for one thing, especially if they're an adult, they're still living in the place that they grew up in, so they're really ensconced, you know. And they, they, but that there is a different culture. The local culture of of local Central Oregonians, there's a culture to it, and it's not the same as the the implants, you know, or the implants. What do you call it? Transplants. Transplant, sorry, transplants. So we'll scratch that from yeah, the record. There you go. So so <laughs> thank you. Um, Next we'll talk incoming, about bikinis too. Incoming. Thanks for the segue. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I don't know so much of it. It's a change. The other thing is the beach culture in terms of apparel and whatnot is mm-hmm. something that's not actually just to Bend Oregon. I mean that's sort of a known in the outdoor industry. There's lots of brands putting apparel out that look like yeah. that because it's an accepted form of apparel all the way across. You know, people are liking that kind of casual yeah. well, beachy I, look. And I see a lot, uh, ironically, I see a lot in the, the, the fashion of the surf industry has, be, has become very Western. It's, well, exactly. And it, it's perfect here now. Yeah. Because we're surfers and we're Western. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and also, you know, like Dave said, so many people have a connection 
if you're from the West Coast or you live on the West Coast, it's, you know, Hawaii's not a very far getaway. It's sort of like people in the Midwest tend to go to Florida a lot. Yeah. You know, people on the West Coast tend to hit Hawaii as a vacation spot. So there's a lot of connection yeah, to that. One bus ride to Hawaii. It's yeah. pretty darn close. Well, and, and on that same note, I mean, you talk about there's a ton of Californians up here. And yes, there are. I, I can vouch for that. I, I'm a Californian who moved up here. Um, but there is a tremendous Hawaiian contingency that lives in Central Oregon as well. Yep. And it's particularly in sisters. And yep. I mean, how, how does that happen? I mean, I understand the whole the cost of living in Hawaii, but... Hawaii was largely rural up until 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I mean, the town I grew up in, Kailua, I mean, it was small. It was like um, the size of Bend when I moved here in 92. It was, um, you know, when I was like 12 years old, my mom would just drop me off at the beach or she'd even let me walk to the beach with my surfboard and stuff. I mean, that, that's unheard of now because, you know... Kailua has swollen to like 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got all the problems that a big city, well, not quite all the problems a big city has. But, um, you know, it's changed, it's changed quite a lot. Um, I think Central Oregon, you know, when I moved here, one of the things I liked about it was it was, it was a lot like uh, Kailua when I was a kid growing up. Uh, you know, like, a, in fact, I used to, it was like 10 years old when I used to go to the beach by myself. You know, I could go into a store um, and I could pay, pay for stuff with a check like at Albertsons, and they wouldn't ask for my ID. It just blew my mind that they, you know, oh, you're a local. Oh, that's okay. You, you know, they was, trusted me. But I, was that back in the day when everyone was your uncle and everyone was your aunt? Well, that was here in Central Oregon. Oh, when he moved, yeah. when you okay. moved originally. And, and, and that was the same feeling, you know, for, a, for a, you know, kind of a country boy from Hawaii. You come here and, you, and these people trust you. I mean, you know, I'm like, holy smokes, man, this is really cool. You know, what, what, a, what, a, what a feeling, you know, and... Um, generally speaking, people in Central Oregon are really, really nice. Um, I used to, I used to love all the, um, you know, like the more the trucker and the, um, you know, the, the lumberjack um, people we used to have around the area, that lifestyle and stuff. You know, that I identify with those people, hunting and fishing and stuff. That's a lot of the reason um, I thought this area was so great. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm glad we haven't lost those those parts of it. I'm glad that it exists. Here still. Well, I remember coming up to Sisters to visit my parents for the first time, and I'm walking down the road, and I see some random car drive by. Next thing you know, hand goes up and waves. Yeah. Coming from Southern California, I was thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did he wave or did he flip me off? <laughs> I, I think he waved. <laughs> what was that about? Right. <laughs> it, was, it was just mind-boggling people in Central yeah. Oregon. And, and it, yeah, and the, the same the same folks that you're talking about, the, the hunters and the truckers and the loggers, and their salt of the earth. Yeah, you, you broke in. I, I like to believe that in Central Oregon, if you're broken down on the side of the road, someone's going to stop and help you. If you're in distress, someone's going to stop and help you. You're not anonymous here. I, I think I really like that. And so, like when people ask me, you know, how could you move from Hawaii? I go like, well, it's such a great place. I mean, it's it's a wonderful place. Hawaii's a wonderful place too. But Central Oregon, there's something special about this place. I'm sure there's other places. You know, other places have this, but. That, that's certainly that helping one another is something that I, I, I've seen here, and I, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. And that will lead us to our uh, last question, but we're going to hold that for a few minutes. But um, So we talked about a little bit about uh, dragon boating and, and um, other things, but kind of getting, getting back to, well, not Kiloa directly, but indirectly, how has your career for both of you even before Kilo, what life lessons have you learned as a result of making paddles for the masses? 
It's so funny. The one I always go to whenever we speak at the college at this at this business class, the I and this is just because I tend to be more on the conservative side. I always say keep your personal overhead low because it gives you options and choices in life. In other words, moving to Bend, Oregon, and living off of one teacher's salary so Dave could go and you know follow this dream. A lot, we were allowed to do that. We didn't buy too big of a house. We'd already mm-hmm. saved enough money to put a larger down payment on, so we didn't have the mortgage insurance. Kept the personal overhead low, so you, it allowed choices, which was actually part of that conscious decision to move to Hawaii. We were very clear that if we bought a house, not only would we be teaching it, we both taught in schools, but we would also have jobs all summer long, and we would probably have second jobs as well. And probably not really be able to paddle very much because all we'd be able to do is work to afford to pay the mortgage. Mm-hmm. So what I realized early on was, wow, you know, the, you know, I, I think neither one of us are huge materialistic wanters. So if you if you're not jonesing to always have the best, the most of this, you tend to be okay and not have to, you know, basically not get overextended. And when you get into these overextended situations, that's when suddenly options in life become very limited. I can't, I can't change this because I can't afford to because I'm in this situation, you know? Hmm. So I, I, that's, that's one of my lessons out of it because it allowed me to, at 40, stop teaching, which was a big thing. Now, remember, I'm still at 40, the, the primary breadwinner. I've got the insurance. I've got the, you know, retirement. And the whole, the whole family is based on that package. And yet we make this conscious decision that I'm going to jump off and take a leave. And after that, I had to either resign or go back to work. And I resigned. And that was a really challenging thing to do and a big thing to do. But only possible because we our personal overhead was yeah. relatively low. I wish I heard your spiel when I was 20. Really? <laughs> well, yeah. my 20-year-old self, uh, I'd like to go back and do a few wag, things wag, wag my finger at him a few times. But how about you, Dave? Um... Probably the biggest life lesson I've learned is that um, things are going to change and that you need to remain flexible and you need to educate yourself as much as possible um, because you're going to constantly be making decisions along the way. And um, you're going to, you know, the right decision right now isn't necessarily going to be the right decision a year from now. And um, But as Meg says, you know, part of that... Um, being flexible and changing direction has to do with you have to keep your overhead low enough so that you can change direction so you don't get too locked in. Like I said, I wish you were there when I was 20. <laughs> That's good because usually when I'm giving that spiel, I'm giving it to kids or younger adults who are on their way. I just know it. It's if you're somebody who wants the choices, you know. Yeah. And he is right. I mean, that it's boy owning a business. Wow, decisions. Constantly, right? Yeah. And, of mm-hmm. course, you know, we probably all know people who prefer to make that one decision, lock it in, and just move forward, put mm-hmm. their head down, and just keep on going. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sorry, maybe that worked back in the day, but in this day and age, in the YouTube age and age of Siri, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah, things change so quickly. So you quickly. better, if yeah, if you don't, yeah, it's a challenge for somebody who's, who's more like that. Yeah. I would, that'd be hard. So what is your vision for the future of Kiloa and paddling and, and watermen and water women in Central Oregon? Um, You're the forward thinker. Tell, tell, look into the crystal ball and tell us where we're going to be in 10 years. 
Central Oregon specifically? No, no. not necessarily. At the end of your sentence, okay, so. Well, um, in 10 years, you know, hopefully Meg and I will be retired. Um, and so we are taking steps to prepare for um, that. Um, one of the challenges of being, uh, for, you know, self-employed is, you know, uh, is what do you do with your business? And that's something we're going to have to work on. But the vision for Kealoha is, is to be, is to stay in paddles. Um, we want to, we want to build paddles for all paddle sports. Um, I would say that we're probably, we will stay in the medium to high end range in paddles. Um, we want to continue to be innovative. We want to be continue to be responsive to our customers' needs. Um, we we want to uh, we want to continue to be progressive, and I, I see us. You know, it's an it's an interesting thing. You know, as Meg and I age, um, balancing the wisdom of age with um, imparting new blood into our company and the new ideas, and that's really what the future holds for us is that challenge of the balance and things and. Um, I'm really excited about it. Um, uh, I, I like change. I like I like I like coming to work every day and saying what's new, what's uh, what's going to happen today. What about you? Yeah, I, and I mean, my my perfect dream ten years from now. Yes, we continue in, into more paddle categories. Um, you know, we're we're going to have a small apparel line next year that we're pretty excited about. We're looking at doing some accessories. You know, so growth in product categories mm-hmm. and vertically and horizontally and all that. And yeah, you know, just, you're not just a business anymore. You're a brand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Continue to protect the brand and love it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I would love in 10 years for it to continue to live in Central Oregon. For me, I would love nothing more than to have some of our younger employees. If, if, that, if I could present Utopia, I would love nothing more than some of our younger employees potentially saying, hey, wouldn't this be a cool thing to own and, and keep it a privately held company and not mm-hmm. have to sell out to a larger, you know, like outdoor, many outdoor brands are owned by larger parent companies is yeah. what I call them. And, you know, a, a lot of times when that happens, you know. There are pros and cons. There's pros and cons, yeah. exactly. You kind of lose the, um, you lose the core of it sometimes, you know, you, the uniqueness. But you, you know, it's interesting for us, you know, and I, I think about this, um, is that where we started, you know, we started off as, you know, working with kids and... Um, and that's where and, we're ending as all these young kids are coming well, to work it for is, us. It is, it is, you know, but I, you know, like I, I got to see Meg uh, helping a, um, a little kid, a seven-year-old the other day, you know, with reading, you know, because she was a reading specialist. And I got to see the joy in that kid's eyes, man. I mean, it was, it was unreal. It just blows my mind when I see that kind of stuff. And I think that's a part of... Um, where we're going to, I would say, in the next 10 years. I think, Megan, I do like the idea of mentoring uh, young people. Um, and, you know, not, the, you know, it's, the funny thing is the guidance they need, they really have, they really have the, um, the answers a lot of times, but a lot of times it's just giving them the courage to take the steps. And I think, you know, it is, for me, it's really neat that we're, we're kind of coming back around to doing what we originally started to do, even though, I know. I mean, the beautiful thing about growing is it allows you to, first of all, start to more clearly define employees' roles. Like, you know, everybody wears so many hats. Mm -hmm. But as you get to um, streamline those and you get to hire people who are really, you know, fit a certain niche. We've just, we've had some really interesting new young hires in the last year that we're really excited about. It's just, I love it. They they like open office environments. They're, you know, they don't, 
manila folders, what are those? Never heard of them, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm still like, really, I need to have it on a piece of paper. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen a peachy folder in decades. <laughs> right, exactly, you know, and just, just to bring that youth in. And, and, you know, I think, although we need to be able to uh, continue to live if we want to retire, so we will have to make some money on selling this business. I would love to think that it was a business that was created in Central Oregon, could stay here, could continue to provide jobs for people, and that was and and I would love it if the culture could stay the same. You know, once you are fully gone, there's nothing you can do about it. But that would be my dream. Again, I'm back yeah. to my utopic dream. You yeah. know, because although we're business owners, we tend. I was people today. I was interviewing somebody at. Somehow we got in a little bit talking about politics. And I said, I know it's always so difficult for people to believe that That sometimes I say, maybe I'm even a socialist and I'm a business owner. <laughs> I mean, I'm not really. But come, when you have the backgrounds we have, mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing to come from social work and special education and then be in the business world. And yeah, we bring many of our tools those from Those can that. be viewed as two opposite worlds. Yeah, but they actually don't have to be. They but they don't, yeah, they don't have they to don't. be. They don't. And in fact, we... We believe people. much of our success is our backgrounds, yeah. our longevity with our employees and whatnot. Um, so do you have a vision on, uh, on what the, the world of water sports will be? Uh, for Bend, Oregon, you mean? For just Central, just in, in general. I'm Bend, Oregon. The world I'm of sure water we'll sports. That trend, but. Yeah. I think stand-up's here to stay. Um, you know, I think... Dragon and Outrigger are—they're <clears throat> going to continue to be niche sports. I mean, Outrigger is an amazing sport, but it requires a lot of people. The boats are big and heavy. It's—it's it's definitely a team sport. If you're not a team guy, you're—you're you're not doing a team sport. You're not—you're yeah. not in it. You know, um, you know. It's interesting. Is there going to be another unique, creative water sport that we don't even know about? I mean, basically, that's what stand-up is, isn't it? It's, a, it's really a brand-new sport, although, yes, we know that the you know, Hawaii people were standing on boards a million years ago and doing it and taking pictures of the tourists and whatnot. Yeah. It's still, as an actual sport itself, is new. I think kayaking will always be around. I think canoeing will always be around. I'm just curious. I just think it's unique. Like, wow, will there be something new, a new water sport altogether yeah, that's human-powered? It's kind of hard to look from this side of the... the time continuum to say, God, I can't imagine what's next. And then, of course, we look back at at all the stuff that has come about in the last 20 years, and I can't imagine life without snowboarding or stand-up paddling, or it's kind of interesting. What about you, Dave? Uh, I think uh, what's next in water sports, uh, that's what we got the young people for, you know? I mean, they're going <laughs> to they're gonna come up with something, you know, but whatever they come up with, you know, I'll make them something, you know? I got right no on. problem with that. And, and apparently you'll get them a, a T-shirt next year, too. To, yeah. To wear. <laughs> that, too, yeah, exactly. You can find those at Kealoa.com. <laughs> So we, we've uh, we've already answered the uh, second to last question is why you moved to Central Oregon. Out of all the places um, in the world, were there other places that you considered with all of your lists and research and planning? Well, you know, we, we looked at the valley. We actually looked heavily at Eugene, to be honest. Um, but every time we would come and do our research, it would be summer because we were on a school schedule. And we'd look at each other and go, it's a beautiful sunny day, but we do know better. Yes. Like, yes. we absolutely know. Uh-huh. You can't fool me. Yeah, uh-huh. And so, you know, we narrowed it down relatively quickly. I, I don't know if we talked that much about Northern California. Um, honestly, 
I could have moved to, you know, Truckee or a place like that mm-hmm. easily because of my, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, I was a winter person. And then yeah. living, I had lived at 10,000 feet for three years and I loved Colorado. I always said if the Rockies were right here on the West Coast, that would be like the perfect mix for me because I'd be close to Hawaii, but have, you know, the Rocky Mountains. It was it was pretty quick to hone in on that. And a lot of that was the stats on how much rain. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, and the fact that there were lakes, there were there were bodies of water that you could actually play on and swim in and do things on, and mountains you could hike in, and just all the outdoor activities. And it just, I mean, like I said, we pretty much settled on this. This is so much so that we said, once somebody gets a job there, that's where we're moving. Not well, we'll move to Bend or and try it out. Yeah, see. or we'll move somewhere else. We were pretty much that's where that's it. That's where we want to go. Even back in 1992, Ben had an appreciating real estate market, and we knew that going in. So one of the thoughts was that um, we would, at least our investment would remain relatively stable or would go up if we moved here. Um, We couldn't say that about some of the other places that we looked at. So this was a really safe choice for us to make. And then the other one was, uh, was number of sunny days per year. Which actually is pretty accurate. The weatherman is really good at, at uh, their statistics. Yeah, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing was that Mount Bachelor was here, and we knew that our friends would come and um, visit us because of the mountain to go skiing and things. And we really wanted to stay in touch with our Hawaii friends. Uh, we, we thought that that might be problematic if we moved to Des Moines or something like that. <laughs> so, yeah. And we've had a steady flow of people uh, through our house. So it was Mount Bachelor was one of the one of the better mountains in the country at that. Well, it hasn't really changed, but I mean, it's well, it certainly known to be. Yeah, and especially that was on the dry side, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I don't even think we realized all that it had to offer. But back in 82, which is when I graduated from college, that's when I moved to Breckenridge, Colorado. And I mm-hmm. believe it was in 83. I was on an airplane flying from Wisconsin back to Colorado or something. And I was sitting next to a woman talking about where we lived. And I was saying, well, I loved Breckenridge. I love living in the mountains. It was a really cool life. But there were no children and no old people there. Like the demographic was 25 to 40. And, you know, and she said, oh, there's this great town. And this is where I'm a ski instructor. I live in Bend, Oregon. And she goes, and it's, it's this great little ski town. There aren't very many people that live there. But there are kids and there are schools and there are old people there. Like it's, it's a real community. Yeah. And it's got dry snow like Colorado. And I was like, Really? Long before I ever met my brother's wife, who's also used to, you know, she, she, my brother lives in the valley. She would talk about Bend, and that's who got us here on a vacation one time. Mm. So it had been a town in my ear that I'd known about, you know, for eight years before we even ever started doing research. It just kind of kept coming up. It's you funny know? how just those, those little seeds of experience just kind of all culminate into where you're kind of like you were, you were talking about how the, the name Akilah came about, how just these little serendipitous little seeds Mm -hmm. grew into this great big harvest Mm -hmm. to keep the metaphor going. That's very nicely (laughs) said, actually. (laughs) Um, So uh, the, the the big question that, you know, my, my defining question is how do you guys define the good life? I know Dave, you and I had a little conversation offline before this began, but I'm going to try and recreate that somehow. How do you define the good life? Wow. Dave, you start. I have to think about that. If you've already started that conversation, maybe you could try to find the good life. Well, I think one aspect of um, the good life is that 
you're doing what you dream to do. Um, you know, if, if you're, if you think you maybe should be doing something else, then um, it's, it's going to be hard to be satisfied with your life feeling that way. But, you know, for me, you know, the easiest way to look at things is, you know, in the morning when I get up, I'm, I'm happy to get to work. I just, I look forward so much to coming to Kialoa. Um, it's stressful sometimes, but I always look forward to coming to work. I just love that. And at the end of the day, you know, um, I'm really happy to go home. I'm, uh, it's, you know, it brings a smile to my face to be able to drive home and see the lights on maybe um, at my house if I beat Meg home. Um, that's a really nice feeling. And I think that's all it is. Yeah, so she, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's really, you know, if you're, if you're happy every, you know, with what you're doing, I think that's the good life. And for me, I would agree with that, but I, I feel like the good life is also, there has to be a, a component to it where you're doing something for others. And that's actually been a, a personal struggle for me, moving from being a special ed teacher and being what I call a frontline, you know, you're on the frontline working with emotionally disturbed adolescents, so that, right? You're mm-hmm. right there with them. Yep. And a challenge for me to now be in a position where I'm further and further back from frontline. And actually only within the last couple of months had this revelation that it's actually, you know, when you're a special ed teacher, people say things to you like, oh, you're such a saint, you're an angel. And you're like, well, not really. You're a saint and an angel when you do something that's really hard that you don't want to do. I want to do this. So for me, it, it gives back. So this, I've been struggling with how, what is my, kind of what is my purpose and how am I giving back? And I, I really lived through that with, you know, my employees or my friends or this kid that we were involved with last week. I was working with on reading. You know, for me, the uh, component of the good life is making sure that you are out there making life for other people better. That, that has to be, for me, that. And I'm, I actually know that's true of Dave, too. That without that, there's no reason for me. And so I imagine the, um, I, I can't even, well, I can't imagine an average listener to those podcasts, but I envision that the listeners out there would be the, the young 20 year old who's trying to figure out what he or she is supposed to do with their lives. I imagine the, the young couple that don't have kids yet that are trying to decide whether we should, whether we shouldn't, how do we go about it? And you know, all the, all the stuff, how do, how do we accomplish our dreams that we dream about in our twenties? And I also think about people in their 40s with the, with the family and the kids and, and that job that pays the bills and has insurance. But, oh, God, I don't want to get up in the morning and go to that place again. Uh, I, can't wait till, I can't wait till Friday night. That's, uh, as, well as, all the, as well as all the people who, who are living the good life and they just want to, maybe they just want to snoop and hear what Dave and Meg are doing. <laughs> but what would you say to those people, what advice would you give those people? You know, I would say if what resonated with me with people in transition when they're trying to make some big decisions and, um, you know, when you're in that process, uh, you hear a lot of, uh, you can hear all sorts of things from people. You can't do that. You can't change your job or, you know, you, or you have kids, you can't take that risk or what are you doing having kids? You don't know anything about whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that happened to me a lot when I was changing careers. And I remember this is silly, but I was homesick watching Oprah and this woman, this, this, this exact topic came on and this woman 
I'm channel surfing, and all of a sudden I stop, and she says, when, when you're in transition, when you're trying to make a hard decision, and there's a lot of kind of negative around it, but you're, she goes, I just, that's white noise. And she said, just tell yourself that's white noise. And she, she went like this, and just push it down. Just push it down to the ground, because that's what that is. That's white noise. And you, if you know what you're shooting for and you know what you want, you know, don't be afraid to move forward. Now, does that mean, oh, I'm saying to you, quit your job tomorrow? No, I'm like, don't quit your day job and get ready to work a lot. <laughs> Well, you move into something else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do this with some intelligence, but don't don't be afraid to to go out and try to make a change. I guess, you know, and and I would say with a, a little bit of an educated change. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, that was just that always has stuck with me in, in hard decisions when there's a lot of bombardment to kind of to to classify it as that and push it away to cl- clear your head into your. Um, well, it's kind of hard for me to give people advice because I don't, there's a lot of people who wouldn't think that I'm very successful. I mean, you know, I only live partway up on the butte. I don't live at the top and I don't have a Mercedes. So, you know, maybe I'm not that successful of a guy, but, um, I'm happy. Um, you know, I mean, I think, um, what I, what's real important is to, is you have to have hope and you have to have a belief in yourself. And, you know, like Meg says, if you're, if you're moving forward, if you're just making some small steps to get to where you want to be, then, um, then that's okay. That's the way it usually works for most of us. You know, I've, I've, I've always thought, you know, uh, I'm not good looking, so I can't be an actor. I don't have any real talent and I'm not really that super smart. So, you know, you know, I'm not going to be able to sell something. If only you had humility to go with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, no. But I mean, yeah, I don't have any of those things, you know, that uh, I'm not going to have a, I'm not going to invent Facebook. I mean, I'm, I'm just not, I don't have that kind of intellect. But what I can do is I can work really hard. And, you know, I'm not saying harder than the next guy, but I can, I, I'm just, I'm willing to grind it out. And that's just every day coming to work and, and thinking that, you know, Maybe this might work, and, and um, I'm getting a little closer to the goal. And I, I really think that that's the way most of us are going to go about it. We're not going to have that miraculous breakthrough. And so, you know, rather, so I've always thought rather than um, basing my life on winning the lottery, I'll just be like that guy who's digging with the shovel in the hole, and I'm just going to take it one scoop at a time. And I th- think that's how it's going to be for most people, too. I think in the words of Yvonne Chouinard are ringing in my head right now of, you know, it's not easy to leave it, lead a simple life. Yeah. But for people who own a business, and of course we don't have kids, our business is our child. Mm-hmm. You know, we live a relatively, we try to lead a simple life. I think our friends outside of us would be like, what? You're so busy all the time. But we could have our life be a lot more complicated, being business owners and you know, owning the property here and, you know, Mm -hmm. you could make it incredibly complicated or so we tend to be, uh, you know, I wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. You know, maybe the good life is kind of a simple life in our eyes. It it is. I think uh, because our expectations are low, we don't have to to strive that hard. But at the same time, one of your questions was what drives you and, or what motivates you, and I kept coming up with the oh, word. Oh, that, that's coming up. Oh, okay. That's coming up. Okay. Because I, I, I don't like my answer, but I'm like, it keeps coming up, and I'm like, well, that's the truth. I don't know. You know? Here, here's, here's our advice. I don't know. If you got a good idea, just do whatever you think, man, because yeah. I, I really don't have a formula for success. I mean, you know. 
Well, it seems it's funny. It's funny you say that because here you, it seemed that you, while you were grinding away of trying to figure out the better, the, the next better design, next better design, but you were still, you know, taking a, a leap of faith in yourself and 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 taking some risks and and uh, and it, it seemed way more complicated than just you know applying your hard work ethic to that one hole. It seems like there's more to it than that. Yeah, you know, both Meg and I read a lot, so you know, there's there are a lot of smart people out there who have been through these things, and they'll God they'll bless teach them. you things. Yeah, <laughs> they they keep you going during the rough times. But um, are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell? I've heard the name, but I'm I'm drawing a blank. Okay, Gladwell has written a number of books, but one of uh, one of the books he uh, he writes what Outliers. Yes, thank you. And Outliers, he says that to gain um, expertise in an, in an area. You have to log 10,000 hours or it's 10 years of, of, of work before you get some expertise. And then a lot of times, once you have that expertise, something has to happen to create a break for yourself. So with, with us, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of luck that goes into this paddle business thing. There's a lot of timing. One, we start when there's no industry. You can be mediocre when there's no industry because there's no competition. Right? So we're able to survive that. Mm-hmm. The other one is in the beginning because, you know, the business was one wasn't very sophisticated and I was working by myself. I logged tremendous amount of hours. So for the first 10 years of my career, you know, I was working 80 hour weeks. So I acquired all these skills because I had to do everything in my shop. You know, it's amazing what I can fix nowadays because we couldn't afford to have somebody else fix it. I had to learn how to fix these things. So here comes along this stand-up thing, you know, in 2003, and I've acquired these skills of, of composite work now, you know, of learning how to build carbon fiber products, and tooling and molding in this area, production in this area, just um, by logging the hours, and here it comes, and suddenly this thing is going to blow up, and we have all these skills. Meg has been acquiring business skills this whole time, working all this, and the opportunity is right, and the business is just sitting in a position where we have all the things to go forward. And that's, that's luck, that's just timing. There's, there's not anything you, you can do about that, you know? So there is that part of our, our success that is uh, just good fortune. And that's why we talk about, the, it's kind of the gift from, that fell from the sky, which is stand-up. Well, and it, and it reminds me of that quote that I'm gonna paraphrase ever so poorly, but uh, some, it goes something to the effect of uh, luck is when, uh, if you know it, please tell me. But luck is when uh, when preparation and timing collide, or something something along those lines. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's basically, is that, what, that's basically yeah. what happened to you yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely what happened to us. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, uh, getting to our last segment, I call the rapid fire question series. I completely and totally ripped off from the actor studio, but they were so brilliant. Love uh, it. I love them, but but I have been changing them and evolving oh. them that, as as interviews go by. Is that James Lipton? Yes. Yes, that is James Lipton. Okay. And I was never an actor, but for some reason, you know, you know how you turn on the TV and there's certain sports that you watch mm-hmm. even though you, you never participate or certain things you do? I could not turn that off. It was so interesting. That guy's amazing. The, the actors really trust him. They say a lot of things that they don't say to other people. I, I, I'm really impressed with I, his interviewing skills. I, I, I've, I've heard that he does have the ability to pull... Um, uh, previously unaccessible information out of star Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen it, Meg? I haven't, no. It's, I mean, just being, I'm, I'm kind of artsy-fartsy myself, but um, 
but just watching that stuff and just listening to I'm not trying to get tips on acting but it was but they it just from artistry of and and I'm I'm a believer in the artistry of beer and paddle making and artistry of music or cooking I mean it, I see art and everything but that, that was kind of an interesting take from so without further ado let's begin the stolen from James Lipton actor studio rapid fire questions what is your favorite virtue kindness is what I said humility what is your favorite vice wine uh, my 400 horsepower truck in the parking lot What motivates you? Competition. I'm sensing Meg was much more prepared for these. (laughs) Uh, um, Everything motivates me. I get fired up. I get fired up about all kinds of things. I'm I'm trying to calm myself down, actually. All right. What frustrates you? I couldn't do this in one word, but I get frustrated when I can't uh, meet my own expectations. That I set for myself. Uh, organizational task. I have a hard time with that. I get very frustrated. What guides you? My parents. I mean, the, my upbringing. And actually Dave's parents, too. I would say what guides me is everything I learned from the parents. That's interesting you said that because I, I thought of our parents. You know, they've, um, all of our parents um, helped people for a living. Uh, so it's just, um, I guess that's kind of a common theme with us. And what distracts you? Email. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry for all the emails I sent you before this podcast then. Oh, you, no, you didn't. No, no, no. I'm distracted by, is that, no, I'm, I'm distracted by email itself. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, squirrels. <laughs> I'm distracted by everything. <laughs> kind of attention deficit. <laughs> That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, we, that's what we say at the, around the shop a lot. Oh, that was great. Um, uh, what inspires you? I say Dave inspires me. Um, you know, it's funny thing is that I, um, I, I look a lot of places for inspiration. You know, um, I watch a lot of things. I read a lot of things. And I think that one of the common themes that really gets me fired up is um, underdogs, Um Doing something, and and it's it's not necessarily um, an underdog winning, but it's it's the purity of effort. You know, I, I really appreciate that to to go one hundred percent. And if, if even if you if you know you're going to fail, it's even better. You know, that to me that's just that shows uh, so much heart, and that really inspires me when I uh, I see the effort that people make. I like that answer. What other work? Would you like to try, given the opportunity? Wow, yeah, that's, I mean, my first thought was, well, I kind of already did that. I would really, you know, I liked my, I really liked being a special ed teacher. And then I thought, well, what do I always say I'm going to do when I retire? (laughs) I'm going to be the old lady walking down the street with a bag of dog poop in her hand because I'm going to be a dog walker. (laughs) it would be, I think something that would be really a motivating challenge would be to run, to run a nonprofit that was fine, fiscally, you know, successful. Like, a, I don't know. There's Nat- the, naturally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be an interesting challenge. 
what what other work would you like to try given the opportunity um this was that was a really hard question i don't really can't really think of what else i would do i'm pretty satisfied with what i do um the other thing too is i don't think i'm that employable um i don't really i'm kind of an idea guy i mean not too many people are hiring idea guys i guess so uh, <laughs> you know, it's not about what are something. you getting hired it's like what would you like to try for work I wanted to building be building sleds. Well, I wanted to be a doctor. Yeah, building sleds. <laughs> yeah, I built a sled once for her for uh, Christmas. Christmas. I got this idea. I was walking through a used uh, sporting goods st- store, and I saw this these skis. And I thought, wow, a sled. Meg likes the sled. I'll, I'll I'll make her a sled. So I pull it on Christmas Day, and she looks at it. It had carbon fiber. It was it was really cool looking. It's very man. trick. Very trick looking thing. She looks at me and she goes, "Are you trying to kill me?" <laughs> um, so anyway. Um, um, I, you know, I, I did want to go to med school, um, but I had problems with chemistry. I'm not good at math. It was, it was really problematic. But it, yeah, if I could do anything else, I would like to be a doctor. Interesting. Interesting. And what is or what, or what was, well, let's just say what is your single motivating purpose? Well, really for me, uh, uh, making the world better somehow for others is my single motivating purpose. Um. Remaining like a child is what my motivating purpose in life is. I'm basically do the same thing I did when I was 12 years old, which is make models. Um, that's my job. My life hasn't changed a whole lot in <laughs> 40 something years. Which man. is why I wanted to interview you for the good life. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, I got to see the picture in my office when he was two with a set of keys, fixing, pretending to fix a. You know, a, a lawn chair. It's some. It's a great, great shot of doing the or, same thing when he was two, or yeah. one even. I or me out in the parking lot with my radio-controlled truck, trying to figure out how the the servo motors work and the batteries work to see if I can make like a steering mechanism for a stand-up board, electronically controlled. Yeah, that's what my job is. It's like it's playing basically. It's it's. Uh, Maybe we should go back to the question about the future of water sports. Discuss the radio-controlled stand-up paddle. (laughs) Yeah, but like I say, a lot of times things don't always work out. I figured that when I was like, wow, this thing's going to be really expensive. The damn truck costs 500 bucks. I was like, you know, how much is this unit going to cost? You know, it's going to be kind of expensive. But I hope you enjoyed the R&D. Yeah, I did. I like the truck. I really, it's a really cool truck. Okay, good. And last question is, what do you hope to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome home. (laughs) I can't top that. <laughs> well, you know, when I read these, I just wrote down my initial. Yeah. I tried to just write down my things right off the top of my head. Well, I can't say anything. That's just too good. I'll, good. Let, I'll let her go first. He's I'll, always the creative one. Yeah, I said something creative. Oh, because I'm older, I'll probably die first. So I'll get to I'll get to hear that first. Then yeah. okay. And I'll say a copycat. Okay, then they'll say, "Hey, Dave's waiting for you." <laughs> 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 no, I'd, I'd, I'd probably like him just to say, you know, you're a nice guy. Nice. I kind of, I guess, I kind of envisioned like, uh, aloha. Here, your flip flops. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave your slippers at the door. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, where can people find you and find out uh, more about uh, your paddles, what you guys do, and and uh, and of course, one of the things I love about your um, your uh, uh, website and the blog is you know, the talk story. Where, where can people find that? Ah, 
Well, our website is www.talk.kealoa.com. Kealoa.com. And yeah, we have a link there called Talk Story underneath mm-hmm. as our blog. And we're really working at putting a lot of videos up, especially of Dave John here. So there's lots of, yep. I think you did, you'd, you went through some videos. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yep. Trying yep. to get quite a few. Yeah. Um, got a, quite a few videos up there. So, yep. so for those people. So you're that, on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm, we have a YouTube channel. Um, or you could always come visit. If you come to Bend, oh. Oregon, you're welcome to uh, look us up. I mean, we don't actually have a retail space, but if people show up here, we are happy to give them a little tour and say hi. And so that uh, last little question is not even on my list. It's just kind of thinking this would be appropriate. But, you know, people who want to get involved in the sport of paddling of some kind, mm. how this, this should have been on the list, probably mm. the first, one of the first questions, how do people get started? Especially, especially in Central Oregon. I mean, at Hawaii, that's no-brainer. SoCal, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. How do people get started? First thing is swim lessons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or, or put a PFD uh, on. I, I concur. <laughs> um, stand-up is really easy. Um, if um, You can go to um, n- a number of shops in town. Almost any place you are, if there's a stand-up shop, they'll have a rental program, and a lot of times they'll have lessons, and that's a good thing to do. I mean, if you're not familiar with paddle sports, a lesson is not a bad idea. Um, to do that. Um, if you're near a place where they have outrigger paddling, that's something you're interested, usually most outrigger teams start in April. Um, and you just go and you sign up and say, I want to paddle. And there's, there's, um, they're called novice divisions, uh, first time paddlers. You can go there and there's coaching provided. And that's, a, that's an excellent place to learn how to be a paddler um, because of the coaching. Dragon boating is the same way. I don't know when they start. Um, but I was assuming it's about the same time, which is spring. If you go online and Google, you know, outrigger clubs in your state or um, dragon boat clubs in your state, uh, and, and again, if you're in Iowa, there's probably none. But in, you know, you'll be able to kind Not of yet. right. Not you'll yet. you'll be able to get in there, and you'll get a contact, and they'll tell you, oh, well, these would be a great nights to show up, or here's when we practice, or this is when the new people show up Monday nights, five thirty, and where it is and whatnot. So. In Bend, uh, yeah, we tend to start our paddling, our outrigger paddling in April. We're a little bit challenged with uh, the high water use now in those big canoes. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in April it's cold, so we have to paddle at night. And then uh, when it starts to get warm, we need to switch our practices to morning. And that really just started last year. And that's challenging because people are trying to set a life schedule. And that means you flip-flop. So we'll see how that goes this year. Yeah. So, you know, where, and may I interject yeah. real quick? What is the website for um, uh, paddling here in Central Oregon? BendOutrigger.org. Um, and what we're, we try to do is have information up at Tumalo Creek Canoe and Kayak Store okay. because that our boats are down there by the water. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and that information won't even be up there till, well, I guess it's almost March, end of March. Oftentimes, the newer people start a little bit later. We have a race right away in April. There's no way new people are ready to to go to that race. And so the veterans tend to train when it's cold. You know, a lot of new people aren't necessarily interested in coming to learn how to paddle when it's snowing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's better to kind of start a little bit. Paddling is a little bit different than, like, running and bicycling, where you can just go get a bike and put on some shoes or you can just do the activity. In that... um, Paddling, because water conditions um, can be dangerous, um, it, you know, you can get yourself into trouble, you know, like like on the river near the 
you know, the Colorado Bridge, you can get sucked down through that hole if you can't maneuver your boat, you know, and, you, and someone's drowned going through that thing. You know, if you're on a shallow lake and it's calm and there's no wind, no problem, you know, get out there. If you got your PFD on, you're not going to have any problems. But that adds a little bit of element of um, why sometimes paddling is good to have some instruction in the beginning to learn to maneuver the craft so you can get yourself out of trouble. Mm, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for oh, yeah. um, being here on the show with us. And, uh, and uh, it's been a pleasure. I, like I, I mentioned you guys offline that uh, you know, I wanted to start talking to people who were doing um, business in town. And, and you guys were first on my list. So I appreciate you letting me come in here and oh, bug fun. you on your work day. Fun. Yeah. Thank thanks you. for interviewing <laughs> us. My pleasure. And this is uh, Jeremy at the Good Life Central Oregon. We'll see you next time.